Hi, my name is Martha. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 115, 15 to 18. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heaven belongs to the Lord, but he gave the earth to all people. The dead don't praise the Lord, nor do those who go down to silence. But us... We will bless the Lord from now until forever, from now. Praise the Lord. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 1, 9 through 10. God revealed his hidden design to us, which is according to his good will and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all times to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 22, 39 to 42. Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and the disciples followed him. When he arrived, he said to them, Pray that you won't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. The Gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Martha. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father, on this, the fourth Sunday of Easter, we find ourselves oftentimes in the same place that Thomas was. We find ourselves kind of a mix of doubt and devotion. And we pray that you would do for us today what you did for Thomas, that you would come through the locked doors of our souls that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would show up to us, that you would show us who you are and what you have done, and that we might then join our voices with Thomas and say, my Lord and my God, because we have seen you at work in our midst. Show up and speak to us now. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray, and all God's people said... Amen, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good to see those of you who are here in the room and those of you that are online. We love you. We miss you and hope that you are doing well. Before we dive into the text today, uh, I want to make just a really quick announcement uh, about meal groups. So for many of you who've been around New Life for a while, you know that New Life Downtown is one of the eight congregations of New Life Church spread all around our city. And our mission as a church is to make disciples. It's not like a unique mission. It's like the mission of the whole church, right? To make disciples of Jesus. And we do that by calling people to worship and to connect and to serve. So on Sunday morning, at all of our eight locations, we're gathering together to worship the Lord at his table, coming and saying, oh, Jesus, we put ourselves in your presence. We submit to your kingship in our lives. Would you teach us and show us the way 
way to live. We worship at the Lord's table. And then during the week, we connect with one another at each other's tables, which we know how incredibly hard that has been for the last 14, 15 months that it's been not possible for us to just to connect at one another's tables in the ways that we have been accustomed to. But we have the wonder of being able to live in Colorado, the land of patios and decks and fire pits and parks, where it is now possible with the weather warming up to do a whole lot more gathering together outside in places that are safe to be able to gather in. So we are launching new meal groups today. Uh, so Pastor Jay is around and after the service out in the like the shoeshine area as you walk in. We have now have like new names for areas of our lobby, right? The, I don't know how many pastors get to say the shoeshine area of the lobby today. Uh, There will be our meal groups that are opening up, so you can connect with them, ask some more questions, as well as enjoy a cake pop. So, you know, that's incentive to hang around and have one of those as well. So, uh, grateful for Jay and all of you who are opening up your decks or patios uh, to be able to connect in Jesus' name. So today we are continuing our series through the Lord's Prayer. Uh, We're in this seven-week series going through each of the seven sort of phrases of the Lord's Prayer, and it's a series that we're calling Praying with Jesus. And we set this up in the very first week, recognizing that the first utterances out of our mouth in the Lord's Prayer is our Father. That when we say our Father, we're recognizing how we're called to relate to the God of the universe. That the one who made and created all things reveals himself to us as father, and we get to relate to him as daughters and sons, coming with the confidence of children to approach our God in prayer, in conversation. But the word before that is our It's not my God, it's our God. And we recognize that whenever we say this prayer, we're praying, uh, we're not praying alone, we're praying with Jesus. This is the very prayer that Jesus himself prayed. And so when we pray this prayer, we are joining with Jesus in praying. We're not only joining with Jesus, we're also joining with the global and historic church. We're joining with one another in praying this. So despite how alone we might feel in prayer, we're never actually alone. That we're praying with Jesus and we're praying with one another. And then last week we talked about that phrase, hallowed be your name. And what does it mean for God to hallow things? What does it mean for God to make things holy? Well, today we're moving on to the next phrase. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10 says this, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today, what I want to do is I want to walk us through the text backwards. We'll kind of moonwalk through the Bible today. And we're going to start with that last phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, this sort of prepositional phrase, this modifier that comes up that deals with two realms. It deals with the realm of heaven and with the realm of earth. Now, I grew up in the 80s and 90s in Iowa, so anytime I hear phrases heaven and earth, 
I think about the field of dreams. And that iconic scene is Kevin Costner is standing in the middle of his baseball field that once was a cornfield, and there are these ghost players walking in and out of the cornfield in order to come and play baseball. And there's a moment where one of the players turns around and asks Kevin Costner, who's really great, by the way, in sports movies. I'm not sure about anything else, really, like if he could just stay in that genre. And in in that moment, the player looks at him and says, is this heaven? He says, no, it's Iowa. (laughs) I'm I'm from there. And this is the first and only time anyone has ever confused (laughs) heaven and Iowa. Like, and it comes from a fictitious ghost walking in and out of a cornfield, right? No one who's ever actually lived there, especially in November and December and January and February and March and April, May, June, would ever confuse these two places. Here we pray this phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, and the phrase is actually particularizing each of the three previous things that we've said. It's saying, hallowed be your name on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, the sense that we get is that in heaven, in this vibrant place, that there God's name is hallowed, God's kingdom is present, God's will is fully done, that in the heavenly realm, that in this place, all things are as God wants them to be, that this place, as the psalmist says, belongs to God, and everything is as he wants it to be, but then there's another place. There's earth, and it's not so. That on earth, his name is not fully hallowed. That on earth, his kingdom is not fully realized and complete. On earth, his will is not always done. And so when we pray this prayer, we actually acknowledge cosmic disparities on a global scale. We recognize this huge disparity between heaven and earth, and we recognize that this is happening on a global scale, that on earth, everything is not right. On earth, everything is not as it should be. And we can stop in this moment and say, well, this is true on so many levels. Then we can think about our own personal lives and think about the things that we're facing, the losses that we're undergoing, the the things that are breaking our hearts, the relationships that seem to be fractured and divided, the hopes that we had that didn't come to fruition, the things in our own lives that we might feel ashamed of or not proud of, the things that we look back on and have a sense of, uh, uh, of guilt or regret for, the things that we have been hoping would become different, and here we find ourselves in year five or year 10 or year 15 of that angst, of that physical pain, of whatever it is that it happens to be, and we can say, yeah, it's not on earth as it is in heaven. 
And we can easily say, even if things are going well in our life, we look at our national scene. And we can say that if we, no matter what day we pick up the headlines, that we can see all that is happening in our country and find, gosh, this is not how we hoped it would be. This is not how we'd want it to be. The kind of rhetoric, the kind of division, the kind of pain, the kind of damage, the kind of violence that we see day in and day out. And we can say, yeah, this is not on earth as it is in heaven. And we go even further than that and think about the entire globe. Think about the places that we prayed for in Africa or the places that we just prayed for in Europe. And we can keep expanding that out and we can recognize that there is actually no place on earth where it is like it is in heaven. There's glimpses, there's moments, there's places in which we see the kingdom of God breaking forth and we see revival happening, we see amazing and beautiful things, and yet we still recognize that things are not as they should be. Things here are not the way that they are in heaven. And so the scope of the prayer is actually the entire world that we get called into praying for, of turning to God in the midst of that disparity and praying for the whole world, bringing the whole world to Jesus in our prayer, in our intercession. And it's a way of recognizing that we actually can't make this right on our own, that we need a whole lot of help. It's recognizing that this disparity exists and exists on a global level, and all of our efforts to do something about it fall short. Our, injust our justice is imperfect. Any attempt that we have at creating justice on the earth is imperfect. Our peace is incomplete. And it certainly is fleeting whenever we find a way to sort of create it. Our love is insufficient. We find ourselves continually coming up short. So we instead stop and we pray and we ask that the realities of heaven become the realities of earth. That as it is in heaven, it would be on earth. And when we're doing this, when we're praying this prayer, this is not a way of sort of avoiding or ignoring or escaping the pain of the world. There's a way of sort of thinking about prayer that prayer is this sort of moment and sense where like things are so bad here that we just need to like get away from it for a while and escape into some sort of other place. And it can be talked about in a way, it's almost like a foretaste of what we think is going to happen in the future, that we're going to pray and escape to heaven, and we get sort of like a preview of what's to come, that someday we'll all fly away and escape from this place. And yet the direction of the prayer and the direction of God's work is always from heaven to earth, not earth to heaven. He's not looking to take us out, but he's looking to invade the whole thing himself. Remember, we say over and over again, and Christ will come again. And he's wanting to bring heaven to earth, not to take us out of earth into heaven. The goal of all things at the end of times is for him to come to reconcile all things on heaven and on earth. And so prayer is not a means of sort of escaping into some sort of other reality, but prayer has everything to do with this world and with everything in this world. And we're praying and we're interceding 
for earth. Eugene Peterson puts it this way. He says, prayer is not an escape from what is going on around us. Instead, it is a gutsy participation in every earthly detail. It's the way that we actually participate. We acknowledge the disparity. We acknowledge our own limitations. And we ask God into all of the grim realities that we face. We don't ignore them, but we say, God, would you come and invade this? For the people of God, prayer is our primary way of participation. It's the first thing that we do. That when we see the disparities that we say, what do we do? We pray. Your name be hallowed. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That we start facing any obstacle in our life, in our nation, in the world. How do we start doing it? We start on our knees. And we say, God, would you come and would you make this space your space? And then it's from there we're propelled out into action. We don't stop with prayer. We're actually called out into the world to participate with God and what, what it is that he's doing. But our primary means, our first means, is prayer. And asking that earth would look like heaven and believing that one day it will. And believing that one day Christ will come again and he will make everything right and good and true and beautiful and perfect again. In the meantime, we pray and then we move out. Second phrase, it says, your will be done. Your will be done. And when we pray, we're asking that God's will, God's desire, God's purposes be done. And as we talked about last week, the construction here in the, in the original language is a divine passive. What we're doing is we're asking God to do his will. Your will be done. The person that is doing the will, that's accomplishing the will, is God himself. That in this prayer, we're not vowing ourselves to make God's will happen. We're not coming and saying, okay, God, I know I messed up today, but tomorrow is going to be better. Tomorrow I'm going to get it right. Tomorrow I'm not going to mess it up. Tomorrow I'm, I'm going to be perfect, God. You just watch. Watch me do your will. I'm going to do it so well. You're going to be so impressed. I'm going to get like a Christian sticker to put on my like paper, hanging on my refrigerator. Like, I'm going to, but I'm going, to, I'm going to do it, God, this time. This time I'll get it right. God, just give me, just give me one more chance. We're not asking, we're not vowing that we're going to do God's will. We're asking God that he would accomplish his will in this place. We're also not asking God to make our will happen. You notice that? <laughs> I would like the prayer a whole lot better if it was, God, my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May all the things be as I want them to be. May the Minnesota Twins win the World Series. It's been 30 years, God. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. I'm sure they're, victor they're, they're champions there, so may they be champions here, right? God, would you make that person in my life would you make them different? Would you make them exactly as I want them to be? Oh God, make my spouse, make my kids, make my coworker, make my boss, make my neighbor. Make them all into my image and my likeness. <laughs> that my life might go better. Right? I, I, my first encounters, of, uh, I didn't grow up in church, and a lot of my first encounters with prayer were in uh, the word of faith sort of movement 
where this is the way we were taught to pray was you, whatever you want, you name it and you claim it, right? So you want that car? Call for that car. You want those clothes? You call for those clothes. You want whatever. You just kind of fill in the gap. You can imagine how college students prayed that prayer. But when we pray, your will be done, we're acknowledging that one of the great discrepancies in the world may be a discrepancy between God's will and our world, and our will. One of my favorite authors, I know I quoted him last week, but it's too good not to quote Wendell Berry again. It's in my favorite novel of his, Jaber Crow, and in the words of uh, Jaber, one of the main character in the story, he says this, this I thought is what is meant by thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer which I had prayed time and again without thinking about it. How many times can we say that as well? I just prayed it. I didn't really think about what I was saying. I just prayed it. It says it means that your will and God's will may not be the same, and it means there's a good possibility that you won't get what you pray for. (laughs) We're like, oh, wait a minute. But I thought if I had enough faith, I would get everything that I asked for like a Christmas list that I made out and then, you know, it's going to show up under the tree all packaged exactly the way that I want it to be. But when we pray, we actually take and we subordinate our desires to God's purposes. And this is what we're doing. Saying, I have this desire, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus not only taught us to pray this way, he prayed this way himself. And in one of his more excruciating moments, this is the very prayer that he utters as he finds himself in the garden, as he's facing arrest and torture and humiliation and crucifixion, as he's facing all of that pain in front of him. He states his desire, let this cup pass from me, but then he places it under the will of the Father. He said, if it is your will... Take this cup of suffering for me. However, not my will, but your will must be done. Which tells me, maybe above anything else, that when I pray, your will be done, there may be a cross on the other side of my prayer. That that might be what's on the other side of this. There's a cross for me to bear. So when we're asking this, when we're asking God, you, what, your will be done. That's what we're like, what are we asking for? One of the questions that we're oftentimes kind of thinking about as followers of Jesus is what is God's will? What is God's will in this situation? What's, what's God's will for this? And what's God's will for that? And some of our conversations about God's will remind me of the county fair where I grew up. I know there's a lot of Iowa stories today. I'm sorry. <laughs> But in the county fair, like one of the big highlights of the county fair, one was the demolition derby where you just took cars and you drove them really fast and into one another. And the last car still running wins. You know, it's sort of a metaphor for life, I think. Um, (laughs) Kidding, it's not supposed to be. But the other one's a greased pig contest. Seriously, it's a contest where they take a pig and they grease it up and they put it into like a big fenced-in mud area and then they turn children loose to try to catch the pig. And whoever catches the pig wins, right? And this is oftentimes how we treat God's will. God's will is this elusive thing running around in the mud that we have to try to find and catch and really only one person's really going to find it. Right? Everybody else is going to miss out in some way. It's sort of elusive. And yet, when you look at the New Testament, there are several times that God makes his will really explicit. 
where he says, this is my will. And then he just lays it out for us. But it's not the kind of things that we are, really want it to be. You know, we want it to be about college and about jobs and about spouses and, you know, tell me what, I, what shoes I should wear today or something else. But instead, he, he lays out these other things that are much bigger and more significant. He says, God revealed, this is Ephesians 1, God revealed his hidden design to us, which is according to his good will. It's the same word that is in the prayer, which is according to his will. And the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son, this is God's will. This is what God planned for the climax of all things. Where's this whole thing going? What's his will at the very end? It's to bring all things together in Christ. Everything in heaven and on earth. Notice the prayer. We're praying, God, your will be done. Well, what's your will? To bring these things together, to make earth like heaven to bring them all together in Christ. The rest of Ephesians, he then talks about what that looks like. The whole rest of the book sort of spins out from there. And he says, well, what's the first thing that God wants to reconcile? What's the first thing he wants to bring together? And Paul says, well, it's you and God. He wants to reconcile us to God in Christ. He wants to bring us into right relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer, with the Father who loves us. He wants to reconcile us to to God. But the problem is, is that sometimes we just stop there and think that that's the entirety of the gospel. It's just about salvation and just about individual salvation. That's part of it, but it's not all of it. God's concerns are so much bigger. He's concerned about the entire world and his plan is to bring heaven to earth. So his reconciliation process starts with reconciling us to God, but it doesn't end there. As the book continues in Ephesians, the very next thing Paul talks about is Jews and Gentiles. Reconciling social divisions. The ways in which people sort of parse themselves out into different groups, into different parties. And different things that we sort of separate ourselves into little camps and categories. Elsewhere, Paul will talk about Jews and Gentiles and slaves and free and male and female and rich and poor. He doesn't say Democrat and Republican, but he could have at some point in there. He doesn't talk about uh, all the specific nuances of the things that we face as far as divisions in our world around race and ethnicity and nationality and all of those kind of things. But the very heart of God is to reconcile all people in Christ Jesus. Amen. Which means that the church actually should be about reconciliation. Why? Because God is. But we recognize that the only way it's possible is in Christ. If we don't find reconciliation by trying to create these kinds of things, we say, no, how is it that we're all being brought together in Jesus? And then he goes and he gets really personal and talks about reconciling our households. He talks about spouses. He talks about parents and their kids. He says, this is gospel work too. It's our families, the way that we live toward one another. So this is God's will, is to reconcile all of these things. As we go on and look at some of the other things that are said in the New Testament, most of what's then said about God's will is about our sanctification. It's about being made into the image and likeness of Jesus. It's about how we then live as people who've been reconciled to God in Christ. How is it that you then live in the world? And this is where he starts really meddling with us. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says this, God's will is that your lives are dedicated to him. God's will is that your entire life is dedicated to him. And then he goes on and he talks about sexuality. We're like, wait a minute, God, like, we don't want you to mess in this area of our lives. Come on, stay out. But this is what that means, is that you stay away from sexual immorality and learn how to control your own body in a pure and respectable way. Don't be controlled by your sexual urges like the Gentiles who don't know God. No one should mistreat or take advantage of their brother or sister in this issue. The Lord punishes people for all these things, as we were told before, and stern, as you were told before and sternly warned you. So we live in a world now that says the only thing that we can say about sexuality in our world is that everything that is consensual is permissible. That's the new standard in our world. If it's consensual, it's permissible. But God, when he's talking in this area, he says, no, 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 no. Your bodies are incredibly valuable. Your bodies matter to me. You were created in the image of God. That your body is so incredibly important. I'm not just concerned about your soul. I'm concerned about all of you. And he says, actually, the very best thing for you to flourish in this area is to learn how to honor your body and to honor the bodies of other people through self-control, through asking, God, where are you leading us in this area? That goes way beyond thinking that the only thing that matters is consent. That God's best for us is something greater and deeper and truer than that. He goes on another place in Thessalonians, talks about God's will one more time, and he says, here's God's will. He says, give thanks in every situation, for this is God's will for you. Give thanks. God's will is somehow that we are grateful people. (laughs) This is, we're like, wait, wait, shouldn't God's will be like, Deeper than that? There would be like something more. He's like, no, I would really like my people to be grateful. But this is actually becoming incredibly difficult in our culture. In our culture, we have now kind of moved to a place where we have, uh, we have associated authenticity with negativity. That the only way to be authentic is to talk about the things that are not going well in our lives. And so the only thing that we can talk about is bad news or challenges or hardships and all those things. And we need to talk about those things. It's a good reversal from where we used to be, right? Where you couldn't acknowledge those things at all um, because you didn't want to speak them in any way. And we need to talk about those things. We need to be honest about those things. We need to talk about them. We need help into those situations. We need counselors and friends and spiritual directors and all kinds of folks that can help us process all of those things that are going on inside of us. But honesty does not have to preclude gratitude. Thanksgiving. In every situation, we say, okay, God, where are you? What are you doing? How are you showing up? What is going on in here that I can give thanks for? But instead, we've sort of moved to this place where our entire social media feeds become about, here is how hard the day was, but it's okay because I have rosé. Right? It's like the only thing we can give thanks for is wine? That's it? What about the breath in our lungs? What about the 
roof on our heads or the clothes on our back or the food that's before us? What about the friends that have been brought into our life? What about the work that we've been given to do, even though we might not be enjoying it right now? We're employed and we have work to do. What about the other things that we can stop and give thanks for? That these are the kinds of things that God says is my will for us. Not as much of a greased pig as we thought. (laughs) It's a little bit clearer. Last phrase we're going to look at today is your kingdom come. It's the second petition in the prayer. Hallowed be your name and your kingdom to come. We're taught as people of God to cry out for God's kingdom to come. The implication is that other kingdoms must go. Right? If we're praying for God's kingdom to come, that must mean that other kingdoms can't go because kingdoms don't really exist well together. At least that's what I've been told. And it also identifies God clearly as king. That the, the, the government of God's kingdom is not a democracy. That it's God's kingdom come. But we have, a, as Americans especially, we have a really strange relationship with monarchies. Have you noticed this? Like on one hand, we equate all kings with tyranny, you know? It's like it's time for another tea party. Like we, and, I, and I don't, I'm talking the Boston one. He's like, we, all, all kings are bad and they need to be rebelled against in, in some way. That, that's in our bones. And yet at the same time, we have this like total infatuation with royals and romance, right? Like all of our love stories and our tabloids, it's like the royal family and then all of these fictitious royals that were like, but we all want to be kings and queens and princes and princesses. And so I think when it comes to, you know, kings and queens and royals, we want them to be celebrities or fictional characters, We don't want them to actually have any real power in our lives. (laughs) There's something about us that we're suspicious and resistant to power, especially the all-powerful, right? I mean, that common phrase that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Like this is in our bones. We want there to be checks and balances and we want to have personal representation because I think at some level, we always believe that our way is the best way. Right? So I, I need to have a voice at the table because I really know and my way and my idea is the best way. And when it comes to human governments, I'm like, yes, let's do that. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> See, when we pray, we surrender our self-determination to God's sovereignty. Amen. This is what we're doing. But when we're surrendering that, we're not surrendering this to a power-hungry despot. We're not surrendering to a capricious and abusive ruler. We're surrendering to the king who is also our father, the father who loves us, the father who shows us what it means for him to reign as king. See, when he reigns as king, when he exercises his reign, he doesn't do so through military or political or economic power. It's not how he rules. How does he rule? Through a cross. That's how this king rules. This is how he reigns. The king rules not by taking from others in order to serve himself, by giving of himself to serve the world. This is the king that we're surrendering to. 
See, if we start with our Father, because we have to recognize that the very first thing we're called to surrender is we're called to surrender to the love of the Father. And when we surrender to the love of the Father, then it becomes easy to surrender our self-determination. Unless we recognize that this is the Father who loves us, it will be very difficult for us to ever let anything else go. But we surrender to the love of God the Father, and then we realize fully who He is and how He reigns, then we say, your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because we trust you. We know you. We trust you. And we recognize your way is actually the best way. Evan, would you lead us to the table this morning?